0: Ideas and Insights provides a rich analytical framework for thinking about some of the most pressing issues of our time. Engaging, enlightening, bold and original, Ideas and Insights offers new vistas for making sense of the world. Join us here on this channel. I am Badrinath Rao, your host for Ideas and Insights. and welcome to Ideas and Insights. I am badri Nathrao, your host for the program. I wish to begin this episode by posing a question. Have you lately been upset because someone treated you poorly? Do you harbor memories of when someone misbehaved with you or treated you with contempt or belittled you and made unfair, uncharitable comments about you? We confront these situations every day. They hurt us, sometimes grievously. Often, we cannot put these insults behind us, no matter how hard we try. There is hardly anyone who cannot relate to what I am saying. Alienating conflicts are a fact of life. Discord and disagreements suck the breath out of our nostrils. I'm not talking about minor differences that crop up in interpersonal relationships. They are instructive. They help us understand others. I am concerned about chronic, toxic disputes that dissipate our energies, diminish our human potential, and leave us enervated. Every instance of disharmony from seemingly noxious altercations to unyielding, lifelong, festering feuds extracts a burdensome toll in terms of lost productivity, missed opportunities, and forfeited income. In addition, the psychological devastation it inflicts makes us withdrawn, cynical, and profoundly vulnerable. Corrosive relationships, thus, are pernicious. They frazzle mutual bonds and gnaw at the roots of social solidarity. What lends urgency to this issue is that we all have one life that is unidirectional and non-renewable. Thus, no one can afford to acquiesce in acrimonious and abusive relationships. If strained relationships are ruinous and a universal problem, why are we not addressing them on a war footing? Because most of us labor under the illusion that complicated relationships, big and small, are a fact of life, like aging, death, or puberty. You take them in your stride and try to move on. Hence, barring perfunctory attempts to resolve disputes, We capitulate to their oppressive force and struggle in vain with the diffused animus they engender. Is it any wonder that we are all maladjusted to varying degrees? Our relationships are frayed. We feel beleaguered in a hostile world. Overwhelmed by an unavailing sense of despondency, we echo Jean-Paul Sartre, French philosopher and literature, who said, hell is other people, in his play, No Exit. Suppose this describes your situation. Then, like most people, you're perhaps ignoring a pivotal element undergirding all conflicts, namely dignity, a point emphasized by Dr. Donna Hicks, an international expert on conflict resolution. An associate at the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs at Harvard University, Dr. Hicks is the author of two acclaimed books, Dignity, Its Essential Role in Resolving Conflicts, and Leading with Dignity, How to Create a Culture that brings out the best in people. Yale University Press has published these books. With decades of experience in unofficial diplomatic efforts to solve conflicts in troubled regions such as Northern Ireland, the Middle East, Colombia, and Sri Lanka, Dr. Hicks offers a refreshingly original perspective on the root cause of all disputes. She posits that conflicts occur when we ignore or outrage people's dignity. Dr. Hicks defines dignity as an aspect of being human and a hallmark of our shared humanity. Dignity, according to her, is our inherent value and worth, something we all deserve no matter what we do. Dr. Hicks conceptualizes dignity as three C's, the consciousness that we are connected to our dignity, the dignity of others, and the dignity of something greater than ourselves. And she proposes a new model of dignity. Dr. Hicks highlights its 10 elements, acceptance of identity, recognition, acknowledgement, inclusion, safety, fairness, independence, understanding, the benefit of the doubt, and accountability. Failing to respect these elements of dignity, she avers, is one of the primary reasons why we have tense and tumultuous relationships. Dr. Hicks maintains that we can preempt crippling animosities if we consciously avoid what she calls the ten temptations to violate dignity. She identifies them as taking the bait, saving face, shirking responsibility, depending on false dignity, maintaining false security, avoiding confrontation, assuming innocent victimhood, resisting feedback, blaming and shaming others, and gossiping and promoting false intimacy. One of the most effective strategies for insulting ourselves, insulating ourselves from the psychological trauma of embittered ties, Dr. Hicks says, is embracing the Mandela consciousness. The idea that dignity is in our hands alone and no one can take it from us. Besides, she points out imaginative measures like cultivating empathy, making it safe for people around us to be vulnerable, and creating a culture of dignity in our homes, communities, and workplaces will enable us to rediscover the alchemizing power of affirming, nurturing, and ennobling relationships. Dr. Hicks joins me now to discuss her thoughts on these topics. Welcome to Ideas and Insights, Dr. Hicks. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Professor Rao, it is such an honor to be here with you and a pleasure to be sharing these ideas together. Thank you. I appreciate it. Let's begin with the question of dignity.
0: How did you arrive at this idea that dignity is
1: the bedrock of all
0: relationships?
1: yeah all conflicts in relationships, especially uh, when they go bad. I was working for many, many years, as you pointed out, as mm-hmm. a facilitator of dialogues for parties in conflicts so i we started out in the Middle East and then I did my own project in Sri Lanka for ten years and we We basically worked uh, in my program at Harvard. We worked all over the world, wherever there were these intractable conflicts. Mm -hmm. And we would be sitting down there uh, with the parties. And I could tell so, so clearly, because I'm a psychologist, I could see that they were getting so upset, not so much about the content of the political issues, but I could see that they were getting so upset about the way the other side was treating them. And to make a very long story short, I finally said, hey, look, there is there's more than just politics that's that's separating these these parties. There's a human dimension there Mm -hmm. that people are responding to and they're not even necessarily conscious of the depth of it. All they know is they hate being treated as if they didn't matter. And so, again, very long story short, I encourage the people to read the book to get the longer story. But the very long story short was that I realized that what people were reacting to was the way they were being treated by the other side, being treated as less than human, as if they had no dignity, as if dignity weren't even part of their human consciousness. So once I figured that out, Uh, Professor Rao. I saw it everywhere. I saw it in the Middle East. I saw it in South Asia. I saw it in South America. I saw it in our own country with different, you know, different conflicts. So it was, it was really quite astonishing. I I knew that I had to write about this concept of dignity and Mm -hmm. that's what my first book was about. And it, and it just touched a nerve everywhere. It was, it was, I was shocked that when Yale published that first book, I then got calls from the corporate world, from healthcare, from universities, um, from organizations of all kinds saying to me, I think you nailed our problem in our work environment. It's about their people's dignity and they want to be treated as if they are something of value and worth.
0: It's a paradox, Dr. Hicks, is it not, that on the one hand, We now know a great deal about the importance of dignity in interpersonal relationships. But on the other, we are beginning to see that people's dignity uh, is being violated again and again and again. What do you think accounts for this?
1: Well, here's the problem, and I've seen this everywhere in the world that I've gone to, Mm to to introduce this topic. This is something that's not a part of our educational system. We kids don't learn about each other's dignity. Uh, they should. Now they are. Now I've got teachers all over the world teaching this. But but when when we were growing up, and even when our children were growing up, there was nowhere to learn about this. Mm-hmm. Not in a not in a way that showed people concretely what it looks like. You just mentioned all those ten elements. Those that those things are what happens when if we if we are not treated fairly or if we don't feel like we're included or if we're treated as if you know uh we were less than because of something to do with our identity so it's it's the ignorance honestly dr rao i think it's the ignorance that and it's global it's global ignorance and slowly you know slowly we are uh, my partners and all of my team, are, we're getting into the educational system. As I said, we've got people all over the world now introducing dignity into the classroom. And I think the next generation, you know, after they learn this, I think we're going to see uh, a big difference in the way we, we think about what a relationship should feel like. I really
0: hope you are right. But I want to ask you a more fundamental question. What is it about dignity that its violation triggers such
1: visceral reactions in people? So here's the thing that I discovered, you know, I I felt that it was important for me. You know, I'm a scholar, I'm a practitioner, but I'm a scholar too. Mm -hmm. I felt like I had to get some proof that what I was saying was actually happening. Because it's one thing for Donna Hicks to go around and say, oh, people get into conflicts because their, their dignity has been violated. Mm-hmm. But what mm-hmm. I ended up finding and going into the literature on social neuroscience and what, they, what I found there was evidence to show that when people feel uh, an experience, an assault to their dignity, what I call a dignity violation, that it shows up in the brain in the same area as a wound to their physical being, to, as a physical wound. So this is not something that is like a little touchy-feely, oh, be nice to people and all that. No, this is something deeper. And as you said in the intro, that intro was so beautiful that you did. As you said, this is, goes to the heart. You know, It's the hallmark of our shared humanity, this desire to be treated as if we mattered. And, and our bodies, like you said there's a visceral reaction here our bodies respond as if our lives were on the line but the fact is psychologically it's our dignity and it and it has physical manifestations in our brain you know our brain doesn't know the difference between a wound to our dignity and a physical injury so i mean just think about it we have an entire legal system that protects us from being physically harmed but we've got to develop this consciousness that says, hey, we cannot treat each other this way. And like you said earlier, insult each other and you know, treat each other as if they're less than us or whatever the harmful cognitive processing people are engaged in about other people. We are all equal, maybe not in status, maybe some people have more power than us, but the fact is we're equal in dignity. And not until we have that deeply embedded in our consciousness, are we going to see, I think, appreciable change.
0: Early on in the book, you propose a new model of dignity and you outline its building blocks. Can you tell us more about that?
1: Well, I I think that you reviewed several of the building blocks. The first is the definition. Dignity is our inherent inborn value and worth. We all come into the world with dignity. There's no two ways about it. And, 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 you know, it's different from respect because people confuse these two things all the time. So I make it very clear what I think the first building block is understanding what dignity is and what it isn't. And the first part of that, as I just said, is that dignity is inborn, it's inherent. It's in all of us when we come into this world. I think respect, on the other hand, has to be earned. It's something that we do. If we do something special, people, you know, people respect us. They say, yeah, boy, that was amazing that what you did, you know, uh, whatever it is. And so that just making that distinction first between dignity and respect. The second thing is understanding, like I just explained, the neuroscience of dignity—that this is something real. This is something that our bodies respond to. Uh, these insults, these you know violations of dignity, our our brains are wired to react to it. And we have, you know, cortisol goes running through our body. We have these hormones that get released. It is a physical reaction as well as a psychological wound. So that's the second one, the third one are these 10 elements of dignity that you beautifully highlighted Uh, and the fourth are the. um, uh, The fourth building block is are the 10 temptations to violate dignity ways in which uh, our evolutionary legacy has set us up to react in certain ways, like with that fight and flight instinct. But the fact is, there are so many, and you 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 went through that list of the taking the bait, chir- jerking responsibility, saving face, and so on. And the the, the reason why that is so important, uh, Professor Rao, is because sometimes when we get into an argument, you know, with somebody, we go into that mode, into that temptation mode, and we start taking the bait. We start returning the harm. We, you know, we think we're the innocent victim, and so knowing that, having an understanding that we are set up for defensive reaction and it's self-preservation, it's self-preservation, and that's what gets triggered. But if we don't know that about ourselves as human beings, we're, we're going to get caught up in all of that stuff. So we have to figure out how to control those reactions before they control us. And we are equipped. The last bit of this is about knowing and understanding how we can How can we can override those destructive um, uh, reactions, self-preservation instincts that wreak havoc on relationships. And then there's the I and the me, the lap finally, the I and the me, there's two parts of ourselves that we are, we humans have these two parts. The me is what I just described, the one that gets provoked and and triggered by uh, somebody who, who insults us or whatever. Um, and those, those temptations, we get lured by those temptations and our me, uh, this part of ourself is hyper reactive to them. Now the I on the other hand, this, the eye, it's the part of us that has the capacity to re, reroute those reactions. We, we can stop those self-preservation instincts before they do harm and we can make a choice about how we want to react. So uh, those are the basic building blocks. And, and again, even kids, listen, you'd be so happy to hear that little third graders, that my teachers who are dignity teachers, they really understand how to get this across you know, in an age appropriate way. So kids are learning this. Mm-hmm. It's so exciting. You have uh,
0: talked about a lot of things. Let's take them one by one you draw your uh, 10 elements of dignity from evolutionary psychology you said and uh, i'm just curious to know how our evolution impacts our sense of dignity and
1: security can you elaborate on that please so it isn't the 10 elements it's the 10 temptations that are uh rooted in our evolutionary past mm-hmm. you know you know the the, the um The biologists tell us, and these evolutionary biologists know so much about these things. I was like a, I I was so excited to discover this entire literature. I I never learned it as a graduate student. I never learned it anywhere. (laughs) So in order to try to understand why do humans, you know, react so powerfully? Why do we, you know, why do we, you know, even hurt people we love when we we've mm-hmm. been violated and you know what is it so those instincts those self-preservation instincts that i was just talking about they're part of our evolutionary past they're part of the evolution of our species of the human species um you know and now in the 21st century as opposed to two hundred thousand years ago when these these reactions evolved in our brains now we have developed other parts of our brain we have a neocortex that helps us stop those reactions before they or at least stop them before they get really destructive mm-hmm. so fortunately and again this is all about understanding who we are as human beings without this understanding we are likely to see the same kind of you know conflicts that we've seen we're seeing today we've seen in past history We need this, we need this education. You say, Dr. Hicks, that
0: a lot of our tense relationships are the result of the contrary pulls of what you call individuation and integration. What do you mean by that?
1: I mean, I'm hoping I remember what I meant by that, (laughs) but... uh but I, I think it, there is this struggle. There's a struggle that, and E.O. Wilson. If any of you are more and interested in learning more about this process of individuation and integration, uh, E.O. Wilson mm-hmm. makes the claim that we are we humans are engaged in an, in an internal struggle between the desire to individuate and become uh, our own person, our own individual. Um, And that we have all those self preservation instincts that get triggered when we, you know, when we uh, feel a threat coming on. But then we also have this equally as powerful desire that's hardwired into our brains to be connected with other people, to integrate into, into relationships, to be in a relationship with others. So it's this push and pull between wanting to protect ourselves as individuals, but yet at the same time, become a part of and integrate with uh, you know, our, our, our loved ones, our community, all of that. So that's that big struggle. And he E.O. Wilson is so funny. He says, you know, if you think that your inner, inner tension is something unique to you, he said, forget it. It's about being a human because we have this push pull inside us all of us have it so. Um, and then he says he calls it, he says, and humans, because of these, this tension between these two you know the desire for individuation and the desire for connection with other people and integration, he said we are we are we suffer from ruthless ambivalence mm-hmm. and you know because a lot of times we were one are wondering, gee do i really want to get close to this person well you know is it going to be a threat to me am i going to be able to trust that person you know we're going back and forth all the time as humans and i just i laugh because I think he nailed it, you know. I think he really nailed that internal tension that all of us have experienced in our lives. You talk about something that
0: really uh, intrigued me. You say that ranking human worth can have pernicious consequences and you refer to Robert Fuller's book, Somebody's and Nobody's uh, you know, uh, Abusive uh, uh, Ranking of People. Why do you think that ranking people in terms of their abilities is harmful?
1: Well, because then it's a setup for an abuse of power. And, you know, whenever I give these talks, people always ask me about the power dynamics here. Mm-hmm. And if you have a notion in your head, let's say that you're from one of these old traditional leadership uh you know styles where you really believe that command and control is the yeah. only way to do this, and you know I've got to, I've got to take charge here, and I've got to. This person, you know, is lower down in the hierarchy than me, and I've got to make sure that that person does their their job and whatever the concern is. But it's 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 a setup for an abuse of power. And the opposite is when you believe. That people are equal in dignity, but perhaps differ in status. But if you believe everybody has a has a right to be treated as if they matter and be treated with these you know ten elements like I've described, that's a very different uh, understanding of power. And um, I think you when you understand dignity and that everybody is equal in dignity power is used very differently and i have a colleague um, camilo Escarte, who has who has blown my mind with this quote and i'll tell you what he said uh-huh. he said any any power that is not used in the service of human dignity is illegitimate how nice any power that is not used in the service of human dignity is illegitimate so this is why he and I mean, we, he's part of my team where we think about dignity leadership as someone who understands that there is no rank order of dignity in the world. Everybody has dignity and needs to be treated that way. And you use your power very differently when you're thinking about, well, my leadership style really needs to preserve and protect the dignity of my people, You know, the people whom I'm leading. That's a very different consciousness. That's a revolutionary thought, I must say. It's very
0: well put. Thank you for sharing that with us. You talked a little while ago about uh, William James' concept of the I and the me. And in your book, you say that a healthy individual is someone who has integrated the I and the me. How can one integrate the I and the
1: me? Well, you know, it's, here's the thing. One of the things things that I feel strongly about is that we humans, we need to develop a big dose of compassion for Mm -hmm. ourselves because we do have this struggle between the I and the the me. The me gets triggered all the time if somebody comes at us and we're afraid our dignity is going to be threatened or even worse maybe not worse but we're thra- afraid would we'll be physically threatened mm-hmm. that that's a real part of who we are we do not want it um, to dominate our consciousness but we also want to be extremely aware of the fact that we have choices about how we want to behave and it's hard you know it's hard overcoming those biological instincts those self-preservation instincts but We have the capacity as humans to do that. And the first stage of reconciliation in any failed relationship is reconciling inside yourself, your I and your me, you know? It's like you wanna integrate those two because you don't wanna banish your me from your consciousness because it's part of being human. It's part of what E.O. Wilson says the the human struggle is. So we just wanna be able to calm down that me. So if we are reconciled with that part of ourselves and if we integrate it into our, our core of compassion for ourselves, we won't get upset with ourselves if we, you know, find ourselves, you know, getting lured by one of those temptations, for example. We'll know how to nurture ourselves. And before we can nurture anybody else, we have to know how to have that compassion and that make that connection inside us. Because we can look at somebody else who's gone off and gone crazy and, you know, we can say to them, boy, there but for the grace of God go I. I know what that's like. And until we have that deep self-compassion, we never be able to extend that or empathy or any of those wonderful social reactions that we all want to learn and become good at. We'll never be able to do it. So we have to start with ourselves. Interesting. Let's now move on to... The
0: Ten Temptations to Violate Dignity. You've talked about this briefly. I am interested in finding out how you arrived at these ten temptations. Was it based on your uh, observation of conflicts? How did you come up with this list of ten temptations?
1: Well, I, um,
0: I read a lot of that literature
1: in mm-hmm. evolutionary psychology. Uh, a lot of them were... Uh, came out of a book by um barco jerome barco Mm -hmm. Uh, he wrote uh something about i can't remember the name of the book exactly but it it was uh darwin for social scientists missing the revolution uh something like that but he he was the one who said until we get these instincts these self-preservation instincts under control we have to control them before they control us. That's our challenge because they're there. You know, these, these these the lure of this this temptation to take the bait, to try to save face when, let's say, you know, we're we're both professors, so we both teach. And what if what if uh, we make a huge mistake in our class when we, you know, are talking about something, we just really make it make a big mistake. Um, Typically, what happens is our, our self-preservation instincts want us to cover it up. We don't want to admit. We don't want to make ourselves that vulnerable and say, oh, I made a big mistake. I'm it's hard to do that when you're in a position of authority, especially. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to do it in any case. So anyway, I, I, these things I came up with by reading all of this literature, uh, E.O. Wilson. Um, there's plenty of them. The references are there in my book. But, you know, and then I started observing them, like you said, you know, but they, the thought of the, the specific uh, instincts, they, they came to me from, uh, from reading all that. And gossiping is such a, an important one, yeah. you know, your last, <laughs> one, last one, because what yes, happened indeed. is back in, you know, two, 200,000 years ago when these, what E.O. Wilson calls these internal uh, mental architecture got developed in our brains you know, these reactions, he said, um, there were no, there was no way of exchanging information 200,000 years ago. So people on the, in the Savannah and that, you know, they had to resort to telling each other, especially about people who were causing trouble for the Mm -hmm. tribe. You know, so gossip was a part, it became part of how we communicated danger. Especially danger from other people. You know, I love that quote by Jean-Paul Sartre: "That you know, humans are what well, hell people. is other people." Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like now we are each other's predators. You know, we <laughs>
0: yes, we it. are.
1: We don't have we don't have tigers on our tail, but we've got each other. You know, we are each other's predators. <laughs> so anyway, that's where they came from.
0: Interesting. Now, you say that dignity is about three Cs, connections, connections, and connections. Tell us more about yeah. that.
1: Well, you know, I, I've learned so much from so many people, and I've, I mean, it's a long story, but I'll just make this one short. But I once had a student who told me that she felt that dignity, well, after listening to me go through the, all of the building blocks and everything, she told me, you know, I think... Uh, I love what you've done here, Donna. I love, or Professor Hicks, she said, I love what you've done, but I think dignity is bigger than you think it is. I said, whoa, wow, what? Tell me, what, it, what do you mean <laughs> it's bigger? Because I was talking about every, our individual dignity, you know, how we all, and how we have to honor each other's dignity and all that. And she said, no, she said, we were given dignity as a sacred trust, when we in a sacred trust when we were born. And it's our duty to be the guardians of dignity in all of its forms, our own dignity, each other's dignity, and the dignity of something bigger than ourselves. You know, Let people define what that is. Religious people can define it in terms of their creator or higher power, however they wanna talk about it. But I also talk about that third C, something bigger than ourselves, as like a commitment to the greater good, mm-hmm. a desire to have a purpose in life that contributes to the well-being of humanity. And so, but people, I let people define that however they want. but the first connection is to our own dignity. The second connection is to the dignity of others. And the third connection is the dignity of something greater. so it it really, I mean, you can imagine how uh, my students, especially, were loved that concept because it gave them a very clear sense of how all those things need to be in alignment if you want a fulfilled life you know you if you have one of those out of whack you're going to be unhappy probably interesting dr hicks
0: you point out in your book that our sense of self-worth evolves over a lifetime and goes through three phases We begin with dependence, move on to independence, and then end up with interdependence. And you also say that not everyone gets to the final
1: stage. Can you tell us about this? How does it work? Well, you know, I think, it's like how anything evolves in consciousness. You know, we, it takes time. Mm-hmm. And I think in, in the beginning, our awareness of our, our sense of worth, if you think of these little precious babies that come into our worlds when we have <laughs> our children, you know, their dignity is dependent on us taking good care, not only good care of their physical needs, but of their dignity needs as well. So we, they need to see us treat them like there's something of value and of worth and because everything comes through actions when you're little when you're a you know a child but then you'll you eventually you realize that okay yeah i've got dignity i have my my sense of worth and you get you know you don't you you're you have this great sense of independence this is when individuation is flourishing during those adolescent years and early adulthood right then there comes a point though that we realize my gosh you know i i have blind spots as a human being i know i get myself into trouble i mean you just ask my husband he'll tell you (laughs) i get myself into trouble because i'm not seeing the ways in which i'm negative negatively affecting him and i can only see those blind spots if somebody helps me see them if like Professor Rao, you say to me, oh, Donna, I saw you interacting with your husband yesterday and I think you just violated his dignity you know, when you were making a joke about him. You know. but, but we need other people to help us grow and to evolve in that consciousness about how well we do when we treat each other you know, in relationships. What We need to be able to accept feedback from other people because everybody else can see our blind spots, except for us. So when we, especially in a work environment, my goodness, we need to, you know, I have a whole chapter in my book about giving and receiving feedback and how to do it skillfully.
0: Indeed. One thing that you mentioned in your book, which I found very interesting, concerns vulnerability. You say Mm -hmm. that part of honoring dignity involves giving people the space to be vulnerable tell Mm -hmm. us more about that what do you mean by giving people the space to be vulnerable
1: yes well so for example you know i was talking about how easily we try to save face when we um make a mistake Mm -hmm. now let's say we're running a group of uh we have a staff of six or eight people i'm the leader and um And I'm trying to, as a good dignity leader, I'm trying to show my people what it looks like to be able to not resort to face saving, but to actually own up and take responsibility for the mistake that you made. Now that is very, very vulnerable. Most people, and as I said earlier, most people in positions of power do not like to show that vulnerability Mm -hmm. because they think, oh, I'm going to look weak or they're not going to, you know, respect me if I'm if I'm vulnerable. But the fact is just the opposite. All of the psychological research shows that when you as a leader who are in a position of authority actually make yourself vulnerable, not only do the people not judge you negatively, your team will, will develop an empathy for you. This is, this, we have this hardwired capacity for empathy too. And they, because they say to themselves, oh my gosh, if, if he can do this, if he can make himself that vulnerable and say, look, I really messed up and I'm really, I'm so sorry. It had a negative effect on all of you. And I just want you to know that I'm gonna work really hard at not doing that again. You know, that kind of vulnerability, talk about the command and control types of leadership. You don't see that. It's the opposite because you want to look strong and powerful and that you can never make any mistakes. Well, and you know, and here's the beauty of making, creating safe spaces for people to be vulnerable. The beauty is that that's how trust develops. Interesting. Yes, because if you model them, if you show them, if you set the tone in your work environment and show people, hey, it's okay, it's safe to be vulnerable. You can tell me when you made a mistake. Don't worry, I'm not gonna, you know, give you a poor performance review or whatever. I want you to tell me, I want you to say, oh no, you know, I I know in that last project I was supposed to do X, Y, and Z, and I only did X and Y and I forgot Z. Well, okay, and you know, and I always use this quote by Thomas Edison, when somebody told him about how many mistakes he made before he came up with the, was he, the light bulb, right? He was the guy who did the light bulb. Mm-hmm. And he said to this critic, he said, I never made a mistake. I just figured out what, you know, what I needed to learn. That's all, you know, I didn't make mistakes. I Now I know what doesn't work, he said. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, right. you know, it's
1: this mindset of making people not afraid because fear-based environments, that is like, the that's where toxicity grows, is out of fear. You know, you used that word earlier. So yeah, so making it, creating safe spaces for people to really say what's on their mind, you know, giving them that uh, opportunity to be their authentic selves, not the self. Well, you know, there's another thing from my book that I quoted one of my colleagues, Bob Keegan, who said, Most people feel like they have two jobs. One job is the job that they were hired to do. But the second job is to cover up feeling incompetent. (laughs) Interesting. I love that. You know, there's no there's no safety there. There is no safety for people to be vulnerable there. If they feel like they have to cover up all the time and afraid that, that they're going to be negatively judged and Right. all mistakes are opportunities for learning let's just put it that way absolutely now you
0: talked about empathy in relationships and i will come to that momentarily it's very important but let me ask you a quick follow-up question on vulnerability you mm-hmm. uh mentioned the vulnerability inventory what is it and how does one draw this inventory of vulnerability? Oh, the vulnerability inventory, inventory. Yeah, yeah. yeah
1: yeah yeah okay so what that is I ask people to take those 10 elements of dignity. I hand them out, Mm -hmm. like say I'm doing a workshop with people and um, I want them to know what their soft spots are, Mm -hmm. you know, where they, people can maybe re-trigger an old uh, element of dignity that's been violated early on in your life. Let's say you had a father who was very harsh very critical and you know was constantly um berating you for uh something that you were doing wrong well you know that kind of dignity wound i mean i would say that that's a wound to a person feeling safe that's a safety violation and if you have a you know uh a background of growing up in that kind of unsafe environment then you're going to be on the alert all the time for people coming at you, and that really messes up our relationships because you don't trust anybody because you think they're going to criticize you or harm you or hurt you. So that vulnerability inventory, you take the each of those ten elements. Now, for example, you know I have a lot of you know uh, people of color, my students who come to me and say, "Well, boy, I have a long history of." being discriminated against because of my race or because of my religion or whatever mm-hmm. and and cool. they and i i want them to know that they are vulnerable in that in that element of dignity that that's going to be a that's a wound even they may may not even be healed yet so somebody if somebody comes and treats you as less than when you have this history of let's say in, in school growing up and being treated as if just because you're from a different race or an ethnicity or a religion, whatever, um, that you are going to be hyper vigilant when it comes to knowing. So I have people go through all those 10 elements. And just so that, again, this is all about self knowledge, Dr. Rao. This is mm-hmm. all about understanding ourselves as individuals and understanding ourselves in that broader sense of being part of the uh, human species as Homo sapiens because we have a lot of similarities when it comes to this kind of vulnerability. Interesting.
0: You mentioned empathy as a significant element in social relationships. Let's talk about that. You say that restoring our primal sense of empathy is central to social adjustment. The question, however, is how does one Acquire or cultivate the sense of empathy. What is one supposed to do?
1: So what I do and what I learned very early on in my uh, Conflict resolution practice Was that when people get into conflict Mm -hmm. the first thing that flies out the window is empathy. (laughs) Yeah, it's just—it's just an observation that I have seen everywhere. Not only in those big relationships internationally, but in my family, in schools, everywhere people converge. When conflict erupts, you know, just think about it. I mean, you say things to other people that you would never say, because you would—you want to hurt them. There's part of you that—that that self-preservation instincts, those self—taking pre- the, the bait. You want to return the harm if somebody. But this is part of that other consciousness, right? That's part of the me consciousness that we want to be able to control. So, um, but that, yeah, it, it just, um, it creates havoc when it comes to empathy because it's the, the empathy is what holds relationships together. You know, each other, people are feeling each other's reactions and you don't want to hurt other people's feelings. You don't want to violate their dignity because you know it hurts. And empathy is that glue that keeps those connections from going off the rails. And so when you learn to honor somebody's dignity, let's say you had a bad relationship with someone and you, that empathy is gone and you want to restore it. Well, what I have found in all these years of doing these, um, doing these encounters between you know, warring parties and so on, what I've discovered is that if you let people tell their story sit them down face-to-face, let them tell their story about Mm -hmm. what it was like to live through the experiences of humiliation and that these dignity violations have created for them, you know? If you give them that opportunity, they, and and the other person who is the, the person who wants to restore the empathy, they have to sit there and be quiet. They can't challenge the person. So this very simple we're talking very simple process of giving people an opportunity to th- tell their story about how how they felt violated by the other side. And you know that doesn't sound like a uh, very fancy or sophisticated methodology but boy I'll tell you it really works. So if you can you know this is why mediators are so successful because they 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 enable people to be able to tell those stories and And talk about safety, creating safety. You need, uh, and that's why mediation is so important because you do need someone there to ensure that you're going to be okay, even if you, you know, tell this story. So this is why the field of mediation is so critical. Um, You know, I think we need. There's a whole, uh, there's a whole branch of uh, uh, divorce um, uh, legal system of divorce they call it collaborative law where they're trying to they call it divorcing with dignity mm-hmm. to keep that dignity intact even when you're in a struggle with somebody how do you do that and learning what it looks like to be a good listener to try to feel the experiences that the other people are explaining it's it's very sophisticated relationship repair that's what it is restoration Indeed. of empathy.
0: <laughs> i do use uh, divorcing with a dignity in my own practice as a family law uh, attorney. Oh, you know, you know the collaborative lawyers? Yes, indeed. Absolutely. Yeah. It's very central and very powerful, I might add. Yes. Now, let's move on to something very interesting you propose in your book. You talk about the importance of dignity education, and you say that it is essential for creating a culture of dignity, particularly in organizations, and you also advocate a dignity pledge for all employees. Tell us more about dignity education and how it works.
1: So when I go into an organization that has been, has a history of toxic uh, culture and relationships where there's lots of conflicts, the first thing I do, first I work with the leadership team because the leaders, as I said earlier, they have to set the tone. They have to show people what it looks like to lead with dignity. And then, but I don't stop at that. I tell the people, look, you have to educate your entire staff here, everybody. I mean, I've worked with a corporation as big as like 70,000 people, and we Mm -hmm. had this dignity program. All the employees got trained in those basic building blocks that we talked about earlier. They, They know the difference between dignity and respect. They understand the neuroscience. They know the element. Everybody in an organization has to sign on to learning this and you know I have lots of help with this I have people inside the organization that work with you know to do it and then at the end people come up with what's called I call a dignity pledge some people call it a commitment to dignity I like it when people I mean I call it a pledge but it's really nice if like this one client I had called it uh, their dignity commitment document And they come up with it themselves with their leadership team and their people both because everybody now at this point knows the basic building blocks of dignity and they agree uh to all of them being the guidelines for their relationships at work so um yeah and 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 the thing about the pledge is let's just say i mean because there's always going to be conflicts it's not like this work avoids conflict it just shows you how to, how to repair a relationship in a way where people's dignity is still intact. So that's what the pledge does. It says, hey, look, you, know, you violated my dignity, but we have made a commitment here. We have pledged to work it out if something goes wrong in our relationship. So they go through a process, you know, a dignity re- conflict resolution process. So that's what I mean by dignity education, where everybody has to sign on to and agree to abide by treating each other with dignity. In the very little time we have left, Dr. Hicks, let me
0: ask you one final question. You say that to move from rage to recognition to reconciliation requires letting go of the wounded part of our identity. But we all know that dignity wounds are deep and are hard to let go. What's the best way
1: of doing this? Well, first of all, you know, if you think about what I said earlier, that uh, the brain doesn't know the difference between a wound to our dignity and a physical injury, Mm -hmm. we have to accept that those dignity wounds that we've experienced, and some of them are historical, some of them are passed down from generation to generation, that we have to accept that they're real and that they, uh, they require healing just as much as if we have a physical injury and that needs to be healed. We just have to develop that consciousness that because most people will say, oh, just sweep that under the rug. You know, If it's anything psychological, it's not real anyway. It's all <laughs> in your head. But we know it's real. We know. Those of us who have dignity consciousness knows how real they are. And you have to work with someone with, around that. Like what I, I do typically, uh, I mean, it's what I've done with myself, And what I've done with people I've I've worked with is just give them the opportunity to tell their stories about what those wounds were like. And I actually think that to be able to do it in a group setting, you know, do you know this uh, practice restorative justice? Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with that? I think they've done the most beautiful job uh, because they have, I've worked with a lot of them and they've integrated, some of them have integrated dignity awareness into their process. And they use ways, you know, like the 10 elements of dignity to talk about what those wounds were like and how they got those wounds. So, you know, it's this idea that only a clean wound heals. And, you know, the other thing that Archbishop Tutu taught me um, was that people, when they have experienced really um, terrible things, they need acknowledgement for the suffering that they've endured. They need acknowledgement. So, setting up processes where you can have, you know, like here in this country with race relations, we need a council set up, some kind of a council where people can be acknowledged for the suffering that they've endured. You know, it's, it's the only thing that worked in South Africa. Um, and he is absolutely, well, he was, bless his soul he is abs- was absolutely convinced that people needed to be able to talk about ways in which they've, they've suffered. And that, it, 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 once you get the acknowledgement for that, it frees you up. It like takes that pain from in here out, out into the external world. It removes the pain, but you can't do it. You have to have a process. Yeah. You have to have some way of healing those inner wounds.
0: We are completely out of time, Dr. Hicks. Oh. Thank you so much for your insights and for sharing your stories with us. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you once again. My pleasure. That's it for this episode of Ideas and Insights. Thanks for joining us today. Next week, we will discuss a new book by Dr. Avram Alpert, The Good Enough Life published by Princeton University Press this year. In this book, the author, Dr. Alpert, offers a radically novel blueprint for what he calls the good enough life for organizing our individual and collective lives. He says, a good enough life is a sustainable life that fosters interdependence, inclusion, and empathy. Dr. Alpert argues that individuals can flourish without the burdens of perfection and lead meaningful lives by focusing less on getting the best for themselves and more on becoming the kind of people who can participate in a good enough world. Join us next week for an exciting discussion with Dr. Avram Alpert. Until then, stay safe and goodbye.